Welcome to Two Bees in a Podcast, brought to you by the Honeybee Research and Extension Laboratory at the University of Florida's Institute of Food and Agricultural Sciences. It is our goal to advance the understanding of honeybees and beekeeping, grow the beekeeping community, and improve the health of honeybees everywhere. In this podcast, you'll hear research updates, beekeeping management practices discussed, and advice on beekeeping from our resident experts, beekeepers, scientists, and other program guests. Join us for today's program, and thank you for listening to Two Bees in a Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another segment of Two Bees in a Podcast. Today, we have a very special guest to talk about a very special topic, a topic that I think that there's a lot of research that's going into this idea, and it's all the idea associated with feeding honeybee colonies, commercial pollen substitutes and diets. Well, those effects that you see on the colonies as a result, my team and I have looked at these types of things before, and we have a scientist here with us today to talk about some of the research that he and his colleagues have done on this topic. So I think you guys are in for a treat. Joining us today is Dr. Vincent Ricigliano, who's a research scientist for the Honeybee Breeding Genetics and Physiology Research Laboratory, which is a USDA ARS laboratory located in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Vincent, thank you so much for joining us on Two Bees in a Podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, you, you guys, you and your team colleagues, y'all published a paper recently entitled The Effects of Different Artificial Diets on Commercial Honeybee Performance, Health Biomarkers, and Gut Microbiota. We're going to talk a lot about that moving forward, but since this is your first time on the podcast with us, Vincent, could you tell us a little bit about yourself, how you ended up where you are, how you ended up studying honeybees, because our listeners really like to, to, to learn who these scientists are, who these beekeepers are, who we keep interviewing. So Vincent, who are you and how did you get where you are? <laughs> yeah, so uh, I'm a scientist at the US, USDA Honeybee Breeding Genetics and Physiology Lab in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Uh, I've been doing honeybee research for six years and I've been running my own lab for three years. So I'm relatively new uh, to bees and very humbled by bees, uh, but I'm in love with honeybees as an agricultural system, a super organism that's essential to crop pollination. I really can't think of anything more interesting to be working on and I love my job. Uh, my background is in plant science and microbiology. So, so how bees interface with plants and microbes is a fascinating topic to me. And this is what honed my focus, uh, my research focus on nutrition. Uh, my program has two major foci. One is characterizing interactions between honeybee genetics and nutrition. Uh, I'm also very interested in developing improved diets uh, and nutrition supplements since pollen substitutes are an important aspect of uh, modern beekeeping. So I'm excited to hear more and actually to have you as a resource, you know, I mean, we had a master's student, Emily Nordyke, who worked with Honeybee Nutrition, and it's always just fun to speak with other beekeepers and other beekeeping scientists that are working with honeybee diets. So, so the, the research that we're discussing with you today is focused on, like you said, and Dr. Ellis said, honeybee diets. So can you discuss a little bit about artificial diets and what those typically include? I mean, what is an artificial diet and is it all pollen? Because, you know, we consider it a pollen substitute. And so I guess just overall, what would you call a honeybee diet? Yeah. So, so artificial diets or, or pollen substitute diets is the most of the industry seems to call them. They're, they're designed to act as a substitute for pollen, uh, the, which is the bee's natural source of macronutrients and micronutrients. 
And pollen pretty much provides all essential amino acids, fatty acids, sterols, vitamins, minerals, and a wide variety of phytochemicals. Uh, so phytochemicals are things that are not necessarily or aren't necessary for uh, basic nutrition, but they have they may have some kinds of health modulating effects. Um, so while some commercial diets contain a fraction of natural pollen, uh, most of these diets don't. And that's really the ultimate, as far as I'm concerned, this is the ultimate goal of diet development for bees is to replicate the nutritional and functional properties of pollen in a completely artificial diet. So typical bee diets include um, protein sources from yeast, soy, a corn gluten, or other plant-based proteins, and fats and fatty acids are typically included in the form of vegetable oils. And that's that covers, I'd say, a, a good portion of, of most commercially available or even beekeeper formulated uh, diets. So Vincent, I'm, I'm really glad that you are looking at this. I really like those two kind of foci of your lab, this idea where you're looking at the interaction between genetics and nutrition, as well as trying to improve diets. I, I've kind of, my team and I fell into diet research kind of by accident. When I first got hired at UF, we were doing some work with diets uh, per request of a commercial beekeeper. And we were struggling to find any impact of the diets at all on what we were measuring in colonies. And I thought it was a fluke. So we did this yeah. two or three times and found the same thing and yeah. did it a few more times and found the same thing. And then I brought on a master's student and we were seeing similar things. And so I started interviewing scientists and thinking about this and wondering how good are we so far at making mm. nutritional supplements that are good for bees. And you guys are tackling this in one way. So, you know, this paper that you, you guys published, you and your team published, we're going to make sure and link in our show notes so that the listeners can have a look. But can you give us an overview of the motivation you guys had for this project? And also, I'm curious if you could give us a quick summary of how you guys conducted the project as well. Amy and I are going to ask a lot about the outcomes of the, the this project you did, but I'm curious, why did you want to do it and how did you do it? Yeah, so uh, this project uh, is a collaboration uh, between uh, beekeeper Randy Oliver, who I'm sure probably needs uh, no introduction for most of your listeners out there. He's a very keen beekeeper. Uh, and uh, Randy and I just have a longstanding interest in, in bee nutrition. I mean, Randy's been beekeeping for a really long time. So obviously his is a lot longer than mine, but uh, we've been in contact since I've met him and um, we decided to collaborate on this work. And uh, well, the impetus for it, uh, from my perspective is that, well, um, as we know, human land use practices, climate change, they're altering landscapes that were once key sources of nutritional forage for bees. And artificial diets have a lot of potential for um, provisioning colonies during periods of reduced natural pollen in the environment. And when beekeepers want to grow their colonies leading up to pollination services, the, the utility of artificial diets is a complicated subject for a few reasons. Um, one, diet development for bees is lagging compared to other livestock animals like pigs or chickens or companion animals like dogs and cats. Uh, two, there's a lot of conflicting information in the literature regarding the efficacy of artificial diets. And three uh, is that honeybee nutritional responses are complex to evaluate. And anyone who keeps bees or has done research on bee colonies knows that there's a lot of noise in these experiments uh, since bee colony performance and health are so intimately tied to the environment, which is a very dynamic thing. So I've been working with commercial beekeepers for the past five years 
uh, to test the effects of nutrition within the context of commercial management. And this is where the rubber hits the road in terms of translating uh, research findings into solutions that could be adopted by the beekeeping industry. Uh, so uh, this publication uh, that I'm here to talk about, our recent publication uh, in collaboration with beekeeper Randy Oliver, uh, received a lot of attention from the beekeeping community, uh, which indicates to me that we're doing a good job of allocating time and resources towards projects that can positively impact the beekeeping industry. Um, so we carried out a large-scale feeding trial using 144 colonies in Randy's operation, and we tested the effects of different diets on colony performance, as well as a number of health biomarkers and gut microbiome abundance uh, that we measured in the lab. So, so Randy and his sons performed the field work, and I performed the lab work and wrote up a paper, uh, a peer-reviewed paper on our findings. So I like that you were saying that with honeybee research, there's just a lot of noise, because I feel like that's what we, you know, ultimately come up with a lot because there's just, there's so many factors that influence so many different pieces of honeybees, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So with your, uh, with your research, you were talking about having 144 colonies, you divided into feeding groups, and then, you know, that was replicated at Randy Oliver's, um, at his apiaries. So what diets were you looking at in your study and why did you choose these? And did you also look at wildflower pollen, um, compared to the different diets that you used? Yeah. So, so we did, we tested a, a number of commercially available diets as well as a homebrew, uh, beekeeper formulation. And, uh, Commercial products are mixtures of many ingredients. And when conducting nutrition studies in other livestock, uh, usually systematic diet substitutions are performed. Whereas in this study, we're comparing very different formulas. And this isn't the most scientifically sound approach to nutrition research, but we did our best uh, and made do with the materials available to us. So we leveraged these pre-formulated diets and focused on diet attributes uh, that were correlated with colony performance. And in order to do this, first, we defined the diets as best we could. Uh, we analyzed them for macronutrient content, so fats, proteins, carbohydrates, as well as amino acid content. And from this point on, throughout the study, we focused on quantifiable diet attributes and how they corresponded with colony performance. Um, so uh, we didn't examine wildflower pollen, and we didn't have a control for a 100% pollen-containing diet. And instead... Uh, we used a negative control, which was just sugar as a no protein control. So the use of a 100% pollen diet isn't very realistic, especially since uh, our ultimate goal uh, for diet development is an efficacious and completely artificial diet. Uh, so this was a large experiment, 144 total colonies, three apiary sites, eight feeding treatments. So we had to uh, make some calls regarding treatment groups, and we decided on a negative control instead. So Vincent, as I shared a little bit earlier, my team and I have kind of fallen into some of this nutritional uh, research as well. Uh -huh. And a lot of it's just from some of the earlier stuff that we found. I remember a study we did years ago that we had done a project. We, we had tried to feed these commercially available products to colonies and get a response from the colonies. And we did it at a time of year that we were hoping that we thought that we anticipated that we believed was represented a pollen dearth, right? because uh -huh. we wanted to see the true effect of these diets outside of incoming pollen. Uh -huh. But we did see pollen coming in, even in what we call the, the most dearth period of the year, which led us to think, well, we think we're finding no results, not because these things don't work, but because there's at least a little bit of pollen coming in. And when there's any pollen coming in at all, 
maybe it renders the effects of the diet moot. And so we since done a lot of work and, and in our projects, we try to have these kind of sentinel colonies that are always telling us, hey, there's incoming pollen while you're doing this work or there's not. And you guys made a comment in your manuscript that you had mentioned that the location of the apiaries historically exhibited a lack of forage. And so how did you guys kind of ensure that through the project there, there was a lack of forage or there was a dearth or did you guys in any way try to monitor incoming pollen while these diets were available of, uh, to the colonies? Yeah, so, so this is a really important consideration for uh, new field nutrition studies with honeybees, right? Ideally, these studies uh, should be conducted in an environment with reduced natural pollen forage or even more ideally under dearth conditions. And in a perfect world, uh, we could conduct these experiments in total isolation somehow in a bubble that kind of excludes all uh, environmental influences, but that's just, but honeybee field research is far from perfect. Uh, so this study took place in Randy Oliver's beekeeping operation in Northern California. Uh, it's an arid climate with very little late season pollen. So the beekeeper, Randy, he knew that these col that colonies that were not provisioned with supplemental nutrition in these yards would historically do poorly uh, due to the dearth experience through uh, and during the fall through winter, winter months. So working with Randy and having your artificial diets, working with the bees, can you give us a summary of your major findings? So what did you find with the eight feeding groups? Yeah, so uh, an important aspect of our experimental design here compared to other bee nutrition field studies out there is that we had, or, or a majority of the other bee nutrition field studies out there is that we had apiary site replication. And site location is a major factor that influences nearly everything about a bee colony. Across three apiary sites, we found that diets that contained a fraction of natural pollen, either 15 or 20%, produced the largest colonies, had the heaviest, and also had the heaviest bees per colony. Uh, we also found that two completely artificial diets that did not contain any pollen at all led to larger colonies in a sugar negative control. Um, we had some interesting correlations shake out of all the things that we measured in the study. In particular, uh, diet amino acid deficiencies uh, relative to leucine content were correlated with average bee weight and colony size sent to almond pollination. And now it's important to note that these are just correlations that require uh, further testing to confirm. We measured a lot of other things in these colonies, but the effect of apiary site influenced those measurements uh, more than the diets themselves. For example, uh, in a previous study, I showed that colony gene expression levels of the nutritional storage protein vitellogenin were associated with healthier colonies. However, in the current study, apiary site influenced vitellogenin expression more than the diets did. And similarly, apiary site influenced gut microbiota abundance uh, more than diet. Uh, however, there were some effects of diet on gut microbiota abundance, particularly in a diet containing thymol, uh, which appeared to negatively impact uh, the abundance of two gut bacteria species. Yeah, all this is pretty fascinating to me. I'm, I'm really, what I tell beekeepers all the time is one of the areas that we have for greatest improvement in bee management lies with um, pollen substitutes. Obviously, we all want to be able to control varroa. It would be nice if we had 10 or 15 options to control varroa and that they were all highly efficacious. That would be great. That's good. I agree. But I feel like in nutritional management, we're, I feel like we're really behind. I like what you said a little earlier about, you know, with companion animals and livestock and things like that. We are light years ahead with diet development 
nutritional needs for all of those types of things. But honeybees were so far behind. And I was intrigued, you know, but to, just to give you a little bit of a background, my, my team and I and everybody here at UF who works kind of in the honeybee lab, we have a journal club every Tuesday. We read articles and uh, come up with questions in the articles. And, and, and the, your article is one of those articles we read. We moved it forward. We wanted to interview you. We came up with questions. And one of the things that kind of intrigued us through it all is when we think pollen subs, when beekeepers think pollen subs, you're thinking, okay, I'm replacing protein or I'm supplementing protein. But it seems like in your study, you found that the, the diets that perform best that necessarily have the highest protein content, but maybe had higher sugar content and other things. So, so have you guys thought about what this may mean? Yeah, so we didn't find a significant relationship uh, between uh, sugar content and uh, colony performance. In fact, we didn't find a significant relationship between macronutrient content and colony performance. So we, we couldn't really establish um, trends, any, any kind of trend there. So we were talking about how uh, the effects and where the apiary was, there was kind of a dearth season. So there wasn't any pollen coming in. Do you feel like you would have found similar results if there was forage available in the environment or maybe, you know, other factors, like you said, it was very arid um, in North California, which is completely different where, you know, we are here in Florida. So do you feel like these factors would have maybe changed some of the results at all? I do. Yeah. I, I don't believe we would have found similar results um, since natural forage is a major confounding factor for nutrition studies. Um, based on previous experience, we would likely have found uh, no significant effect of diet due to incoming natural forage. Uh, bees are definitely less interested in um, artificial diets when there's, there's sufficient natural forage available. And there's probably also confounding interactions between natural forage and uh, the efficacy of particular diets. Yeah, I just, I agree completely with you, Vincent. In fact, part of the reason that I, we started adding Sentinel colonies to all of our nutritional studies is it's funny. It, it all came from conversations I had 15, 10 to 15 years ago with Randy Oliver, the same beekeeper that you keep mentioning. Um, in Florida, at least where we live right here, where the university of Florida is in Gainesville, we actually put, we have a, couple colonies that we put pollen traps on every month to just kind of create a pollen calendar throughout the year. And we get pollen coming in every month of the year. Now, obviously there are months where it's much greater than others and things like that. So part of our explanation for some of the lack of the impact of commercial diets that we see, we believe relates to the availability of natural forage. The interesting thing though, that I can't explain, I just don't know is that it seems it seems at the moment unrelated to like volume of natural forage. It's like if any natural forage is available at all, then we see no impact of the diets. And I wonder what the threshold for that is. If, if you guys did this in a pollen dearth time of year, so you got these great results. If we had done maybe the same study here in Florida, where during a pollen flow, we might've gotten something very different. I wonder where the threshold is in between to say, I don't recommend diets now, or I do recommend diets now based on what we're kind of seeing available in the environment. It's just, it's, I mean, I know this is an impromptu question. Do you have thoughts on that idea? Yeah, this, this is an interesting question. Um, I think there's a lot of room for optimization in terms of attractiveness of diets. Uh, for instance, you could have the most nutritious substance in the world uh, for bees, but if they are not attracted to it, 
with the same attraction that they show towards pollen, then they're not going to eat it. And that substance can't uh, exert its nutritional effects. So this is, this is always the best question. This is what our listeners want to hear. And this, they want to mm. know what is the biggest or what are the biggest takeaways for beekeepers with this project? Yeah. So, so it's important to be cautious when interpreting um, the results of scientific studies of all scientific studies, but especially bee field experiments. Um, and I think a major takeaway here that I could confidently talk about is that uh Beekeepers should be aware of the importance of apiary site and testing different colony manipulations or nutrition supplements. The results of an experiment carried out in a single apiary site can be completely different at another apiary site. So therefore experimental replication at different sites is important, not only for applied beekeeping research, but for beekeepers who perform their own experiments and all beekeepers should be performing their own experiments. Um, I'm sure a lot of listeners would love to here are some kind of definitive recommendation on bee diets or commercial products, but I think that feeding regimens tailored to your specific operations and management goals are likely to provide the most benefits. And uh, more laboratory and field studies are needed to really continue improving bee diets. I think that was very well said. Thank you. Vincent, that's all great information. I'm excited about the research that you're conducting there at the Baton Rouge lab. I, I really, really in my heart believe that this type of research is needed. And I also think it stands to make a really big difference for beekeepers moving forward. So thank you so much for joining us on Two Bees in a Podcast. Yeah, thank you, Jamie. I really enjoyed this and uh, like talking with you and hope to be back again in the future. Well, thanks, everyone. That was Dr. Vincent Ricigliano, who's a research scientist at the Honeybee Breeding, Genetics, and Physiology Research Laboratory for the USDA ARS in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. So I'm really excited that we had Vincent on today, Jamie, because, you know, you and I have been discussing the top three stressors of honeybees and that's Varroa nutrition and Queens. Right. And so we always talk about Varroa. So it's nice to kind of have a change of pace and work with uh, nutrition and hear about some of the nutrition research that's been going on. Yeah, I completely agree. I it's, it's everybody's interested in different research topics. And I shied away from nutrition for a very long time. And when, when, when I got to Florida and we did a few projects and couldn't really get positive results out of some of the diets that we were testing, I, I kind of abandoned it for a while. And then we tried it again and saw the same thing and I abandoned it for a while. And then we had Emily Nordyke, the master student you referred to earlier, show up and we, we systematically tried to address some nutrition questions. And I know she's been on this podcast and she and I wrote some manuscripts based on her research, but we learned so much right. about nutrition research, just the way to do nutrition research mm -hmm. that, that really um, ultimately makes me makes me think a lot about the, the projects that I see coming out. And Vincent really did a good job explaining his project and what they found and how they did it, et cetera. Yeah. I feel like every single extension talk that I go to, um, you know, when I'm speaking to an audience, they always ask me, okay, so what should we be feeding our bees and what's up with the pollens, you know, substitutes and the alternative feeding products. And I'm just like, well, 
You know, I think, especially after speaking to Vincent, that we realize that nutrition research is not always that straightforward. So I don't really have like an exact answer to give to a lot of the beekeepers. Yeah. I mean, it's tough. I mean, a, a lot of commercial beekeepers feed pollen subs at different times of the year. Mm -hmm. And, you know, no two places are created equal. You know, we're here in Florida, we've got different um, conditions than they have in California where they were doing this research project where they have different conditions than they do in England or Germany or Australia. And so there's, it's not as it's the science is not as easy as saying, well, just feed sugar water. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, that, that, that's universal universally solves sugar deficiencies right pollen sub research is not nearly as straightforward and sometimes i'm scratching my head when i talk to beekeepers i don't not only do i have you know no specific recipes to recommend i sometimes don't even have the ability to recommend feeding commercials or 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 pollen subs at all like right like if we can't get them to work then it's an expensive fix for beekeepers who are putting a lot of money into these things and may not be getting in return what they believe they're paying for. So what are, you know, I guess let's just summarize some of the factors that go into uh, nutrition and the needs of what the honeybees have. Well, Vincent said a lot about location, right? And he is spot on. I was kind of leading him with a question. I I had come to the conclusion through our own pollen researches, pollen sub researches, and maybe a lot of the results that we're not seeing here, the things that we anticipated would happen as a result of feeding patties that we don't see happening might simply be due that we've just got pollen available in the environment, even at low amounts. And maybe even at low amounts, it's enough to offset what we're feeding them. So like, it's like real estate location, location, location. So forage (laughs) availability, is there pollen out there? What's the quality of that pollen? How much? That's why I was asking him about a threshold. It seems like in his case, between Randy's site where there's, you know, low or no pollen available at all to here where there's at least some, a good chunk of the year, what, what point is the switch flipped and the patty that I feed here now works there because there's no pollen. Where is that switch? And you know, uh, I'll make a, a you know final comment related to this. A lot of pollen diet research is just based on consumption, which basically means the patty has disappeared from the hive. You know, we put it in there. It's no longer in there. The bees are using it. Well, these diets are full of sugar. Bees eat sugar. So of course, a lot of these things are taken out of the hive. So there's just a lot that goes into understanding how bees use and if bees use uh, pollen subs that are available to them, which is why I'll go back and say all over again, one of the greatest opportunities for improvement that we have in the beekeeping world is through diet improvement for bees. I really believe that. I believe that is a way that we can make significant impact on bee health and productivity. It's everybody's favorite game show, Stomp the Chomp. All right. So we are back at that question and answer time. And Jamie, what I've done is I've basically taken some emails. Well, we've basically taken some emails and really dissected them to turn them into three different questions. So the first question that we have, um, someone was asking, and really they were listening to one of our episodes and had some follow-up episodes about larva nutrition. And so he's wondering, I guess this this first question is really two questions. So maybe everybody gets some extra questions this week. Um, but you know, how do we even identify whether 
we are having a feed problem, especially whether the larva is having some feed issues and what should we feed them as a supplement? I really like Amy, the motivation behind this question, you know, you and I get the advantage that we get to see the the whole question. And basically this listener was saying, Hey, you guys do a good job on your podcast, getting us to think, but then you stop short of giving us the answer. <laughs> and I, I listen to podcasts myself. And sometimes I feel that about the host and essentially the person's like, Hey, you guys had a really interesting podcast recently about larval nutrition and how important larval nutrition mm-hmm. is, et cetera. But then you didn't tell us, well, how do you recognize larval nutrition issues and address it? So let me just give you a couple pointer pointers here. Obviously, bees are really good at rearing larvae when they've got the appropriate resources and stopping rearing larvae when they don't. And so what are the appropriate resources? Well, when there's incoming pollen and incoming nectar, bees will produce Uh, allow the queen to lay eggs. They'll rear those eggs all the way through the developmental stages to adult bees. And so in order to do that, you've got to have pollen and you've got to have nectar. Now, nectar can be stored and pollen can be stored, but eventually those resources run out. So how can a beekeeper spot that there are nutritional deficiencies in larvae that would make them want to feed? Well, I would argue that beekeepers don't usually have to get to that fine level of detail to know that because other things would manifest first that beekeepers would recognize more readily. For example, the population's really growing, but there's no honey stored in the nest. So in that case, when you hoist the hive or rock it forward, it's really easy to rock forward because there's no weight. So visually, you just don't see a lot of nectar or honey stored for the amount of bees in that nest. Secondly, you might see larvae or the adult bees beginning to abort larvae or brood, and that's a clear sign that there's not Mm -hmm. enough pollen coming in. Now, if you really are interested specifically in larval nutrition, you can actually notice that, well, let me, let me restart this concept. A lot of people know that when larvae are young, these little C-shaped larvae floating in brood food in the back of the cell Right? That's the image that they want to see. They want to see these larvae just surrounded by brood food, that white secretion that they're just basically swimming in. Well, one of the first signs of nutritional deficiencies that's starting to take a toll on the larvae is when very young larvae have no brood food in the cells with them. Those cells are kind of dry, and that's because the bees don't have enough incoming resources to keep up with the nutritional demands of the larvae. So usually very shortly thereafter, they'll start cannibalizing the larvae. Again, you would probably notice something else as a beekeeper before you ever get to that point. But if you get to that point, what can you do? Well, if you're experiencing nectar or pollen deficiencies, the only things you can do in response is in response of a nectar defi- to, to a nectar deficiency, you have to feed sugar water or corn syrup or something to replace that. But oftentimes when you're seeing no brood food, it's not just nectar related, it's pollen related. And beekeepers try to mitigate that issue by providing pollen, pollen substitutes, pollen patties. And if you've been on this podcast listener list long enough to, you'll, you'll realize that I've got really mixed feelings about pollen patties, and I'm not sure that they always can remedy the issues that we think that we're seeing in hives. So to make a very long story short, you can spot nutritional deficiencies in larvae when larvae and and pupae begin getting 
consumed, cannibalized, or when the young larvae are dry in their cells, it looks like there's no food in the cells with them. But again, that usually manifests much earlier as you know, whole colony nectar deficiencies, in which case you see that there's nothing stored and you need to feed your bees. So uh, I really appreciate the question and thought behind the question, but but some very basic things, right? If, you, if your colonies are light, you don't see poly, or honey or nectar, you're going to have to feed if the colonies are strong and trying otherwise to grow. And if you see pollen deficiencies or you see dry cells with young larvae or cannibalized larvae, you might consider putting in protein supplements and seeing if, if that can solve the problem. So that actually leads us into the second question of the Q&A for today. And this person has, um, they have top feeder jars and, you know, so the bees are apparently not taking the inverted jars of sugar syrup. And I guess right now, so the person's asking if it's a little too cold and I guess where this person is at, it's about 55 degrees Fahrenheit. And so what would the reasons be for bees not taking sugar syrup from a jar? Good question. Usually the issue is, well, there's usually one of two issues, either number one, it's too cold. And I believe the questioner asked specifically about 55 degrees Fahrenheit and for the rest of the world, that's about 12 and a half degrees Celsius or so. Is that too cold? So number one, it could be too cold for the bees to want to take it. I don't think that's the case in this particular case. Or number two, it could be that there's simply nectar coming in. And usually if there's nectar coming in, bees will ignore the nectar that, or the sugar water that you provide them all together. There is a third option, and that third option is just slightly too far away, but that's usually coupled with it's slightly too far away and it's slightly too cool for us to want to go that distance. Now, the questioner was specifically mentioning that it was 55 Fahrenheit or 12 and a half Celsius. I don't think that that's too cold, so it might be that it's just slightly too far away from the bees. Usually when you are feeding bees, when it is cool, it is best to put the sugar syrup over the top of the heads of the bees. Now, I know a lot of people who will argue with me here because if the feeder jars or the feeders leak and it is cool, then that sugar water raining down on that cluster of bees during a time of the year when it's cool or cold could cause lots of problems. And I would reply and return, just make sure your feeders don't leak, <laughs> right? So that that's not a problem. But in this particular case, it's just cool enough to where the bees might be clustering. And the, and the questioner mentioned they use a spacer to kind of allow for some space between the heads of the bees and the, and the sugar water feeder. And that space may be just great enough and this just cool enough temperature that the bees aren't wanting to break that cluster to get up to that feeder. So usually when I recommend feeding bees, um, during winter or cooler months, when you have to get sugar water or something to the bees, it has to be right on top of their head. Uh, a lot of beekeepers in very cold climates won't feed sugar syrup or any type of water, uh, sugar delivered water in any way during cool months or cold months because they're worried about all the side effects associated with it. So they'll feed a solid sugar patty, something a lot of folks around the world call fondant or candy boards, which is basically just um, almost that same stuff that you find in queen cages that the bees have to chew through to release the queen. And it's kind of a pliable sugar water mixture to where it doesn't harden that hard. It's just a very pliable clay-like consistency that the bees are able to consume. So to get all the way back down to the answer of the question that the questioner is asking, why aren't bee, my bees taking the sugar water from this jar feeder? It is likely in your case that it's slightly cool and it's slightly too far away from the bees. So either you've got to bring it closer 
or consider feeding a solid sugar that you would put literally right on the frames where the bees are clustering. That makes sense. All right. So the last question we have is how do you use thymol for wax moth control? So Amy, this will be the easiest question that I get to answer because the answer is I don't use thymol for wax moth control. I'm, I'm, I might be wrong about this, but I'm not aware of any formulated product here in the U.S. that includes thymol as an active ingredient to use against wax moths. I know that it is an active ingredient to use against varroa and some varroa treatments. And the questioner elaborated a bit on the question, which is I could use the standard thymol products against varroa and hope for wax moth control, or maybe I can put some thymol in, in sugar syrup as a food additive or a feed additive and hopefully get some wax moth control. But I would argue I wouldn't do either one of those for wax moth control. I would do the standard ways of controlling wax moths, which in living colonies would be keeping the colonies as strong as possible so that the bees can police the moths themselves or in stored equipment. I would either use registered products. For example, here in the U.S., you can use something like uh, paradibit chlorobenzene crystals, PD, PDB crystals. I think they mm -hmm. uh, go through a lot of trade names. There are a few registered products for wax moths. Freeze the combs. That's one of my favorite. But again, a lot of people don't have a lot of freezer space, so maybe that's not an option. Or store the combs kind of in, in an open uh, shed that's got a roof, maybe a pole barn, but no side walls. And so there's a lot of light and air flow through that area just to try because wax moths don't like that. So they tend to stay out of combs more so in those settings than they would in other settings. So again, to summarize, I wouldn't use thymol to control wax moths. I'd, I'd do some of the more traditional approaches for wax moth control. And Amy, we have a couple of documents. I think one specifically on wax moth control that we can make sure and link in the show notes if our listeners are interested in reading more about how they would control wax moths, either in their living colonies or in stored equipment. Absolutely. And, you know, I've gotten a couple of emails recently of people asking where the additional show notes are. And they're actually, if you go to our website, the main website, ufhoneybee.com, you can click on two bees in a podcast and all of our episodes with their additional notes are on there. So keep the questions coming. Um, I know we have questions on email or we have them on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. So bring them on. Thank you for listening to Two Bees in a Podcast. For more information and resources on today's episode, check out the Honeybee Research Lab website at ufhoneybee.com. If you have questions you want answered on air, email them to us at honeybee at ifas.ufl.edu or message us on social media at ufhoneybeelab on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. This episode was hosted by Jamie Ellis and Amy Vu. This podcast is produced and edited by Amy Vu and Sarah Sowers. Thanks for listening and see you next week.